As the children are being dismissed for junior church and or nursery, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 26. Looking today at verses 34 and 35. And if time permits, because it looks like it might, we'll get into chapter 27. I want to thank uh, Gabe Morris for filling in last week, so thank you for that. And Pastor Jim for filling in uh, for Sunday school last week. I had a fruitful ministry in Tampa, uh, Florida. Someone needs to go out there and suffer for the Lord in Florida, so... I volunteered. We are in a section of the book of Genesis where the key focus has been on Isaac. Certainly Isaac has been mentioned earlier in the book, earlier than chapter 26, and he's mentioned beginning after chapter 26, but only in chapter 26 is he the main character. Prior to chapter 26, he's been kind of a sub-character in the Abraham story, and moving into chapter 27, he will be a sub-character in the Jacob story, but only in chapter 26 is Isaac the main man. And it's interesting, something that happened to his son at towards the end of his life, at the very end of this chapter in verses 34 and 35, this is his firstborn, Esau, and it deals with Esau's marriages, plural, or Esau's wives, plural. So here's a brief outline for the end of the chapter, verses 34 and 35. We have Esau's age, verse 34, the names of his wives, plural, verse 34, and then there is a aspect of his sin here that most people don't contemplate, the impact of Esau's sins on his parents. So I've entitled um, this message, Sin's Impact on the Innocent. We oftentimes think that we move, when we move into sin, it's just going to affect us. After all, it's my life, I can do what I want, is sort of the mindset. And we don't really understand sin's nature, the price tag Sin brings, and one of the aspects of that price tag is sin is such that it has spillover effects on people that we never intended to get injured. This is what happens here with Esau's sin as it affects his parents. But notice, first of all, Esau's age, verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, So you'll see a real age, age 40. You'll see a real person, Esau. Um, All the way through the book of Genesis, as I've been pointing it out, not only do you see real people with real ages, but real geography. And so you get the idea that these events actually happened. This is history. This is not um, Veggie Tales or Jack and the Beanstalk. This is not story time. This is actual historical events that God revealed himself through. And I bring this up a lot because many times people look at the Bible as if it's just, uh, you know, you guys can do your religious thing on Sunday, but leave the history to the professionals. And the Bible doesn't present itself that way. It's an actual historical account. I'm not even sure I like the expression Bible stories. Let's read some Bible stories as if, you know, it's just uh, some fiction somebody threw together. No, let's read the biblical accounts because these are biblical accounts. And that's the way it presents itself. 
So verse 34, chapter 26, when Esau was 40 years old, and then we have the names of his wives, plural, that he married. He married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bazemoth, if I'm pronouncing that right, the daughter of Ilan the Hittite, and he married two women, and they, they really had lovely names, believe it or not. Judith's name means praise, and Basemuth's name means perfume. And so who could go wrong with two wives like that? The problem is, what you see here is it's repeated twice that they were Hittites. Now who exactly were the, were the Hittites? The Hittites were among the Canaanites that settled in the land of Israel. They are descendants of Noah's son, Ham. Um, the Hamites, from the Hamites came the Canaanites and one of those people groups in the land of Canaan before Joshua conquered the land was a group called the Hittites. And so that's who Esau chose as his, not wife, but wives. And we have a problem with his walk with the Lord Because God, all the way back in Genesis 15 and verse 16, put the Hittites under a curse. He did not put them under a curse because of racial issues, as is wrongly taught. He put them under a curse because of sin issues. The issue is not skin, but it is sin. And these are a group of people that essentially imitated the character of Ham, who uncovered Noah's nakedness, you'll recall, showing disrespect for their father. And the apple, you know, as the saying goes, doesn't fall far from the tree. And the Canaanites, amongst whom are the Hittites, became involved in some detestable practices. In fact, there's so much archaeological evidence from that time period showing the detestable practices that the Canaanites were involved in, those archaeological finds are so um, pornographic that I, I wouldn't even feel right coming into a church setting and showing you all of these pornographic images that the Canaanites were involved in. They were involved in, when you study uh, Leviticus chapter 18, I think it is, in chapter 20, they were also involved in killing their own children. And uh, bestiality. And I say this with a great deal of sadness. American society is really not that far away. You'll notice that the anacronym keeps growing. L-G-B-T-Q-U-I. And I used to joke X-Y-Z until I figured out that Z actually stands for something. It stands for zoophilia, which is exactly the way it sounds, bestiality. Normalizing sex with animals. Um, I remember years ago when watching these sort of homosexual gay rights parades and thinking to myself, wow, that behavior that they're involved in is going to increase to other perverse behaviors. And I remember years ago watching sometimes on media a gay rights parade, and I remember behind the parade was a group called NAMBLA, which stands for North American Man-Boy Love Association. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's just a minority group. They certainly aren't going to gain supremacy in American culture And that was 20 or 30 years ago, and the very thing that I have feared has come upon the United States. And the next logical step, I mean, what else is there? Sex with a child, what else is there to do after that? Well, it becomes sex with animals. And if this trend is not reversed, that's what will begin to happen. That's the kind of thing that will be normalized in the public schools and taught. And this is who the Hittites were. This is who the Canaanites were. 
And this is why God took that whole group of people, not because of skin, but because of sin, and put them under a curse. God said all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 16, then in the fourth generation they will return here. For the wickedness or the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorite being part of that Canaanite group. What you find interesting about God is he allowed all of this sin to progress for 400 years. That's what it means by the fourth generation. If you think God is not a God of love and grace and mercy, just look at how he dealt with the Canaanites. He let it go on for 400 years. And finally it got to a point where God's judgment could not be averted. And God, through Joshua, eradicated the Canaanites, but not instantaneously after giving them a long grace period waiting for them to repent. The Canaanites knew who God was because when Joshua and the spies entered the land, there was a Canaanite in the book of Joshua named Rahab the harlot. And Rahab the harlot in Joshua chapter 2 said, we know about you and we know about your God. We know how your God dried up the Nile or the Red Sea, I should say, allowing the nation of Israel to escape from bondage. And we also know what your God just did, drawing up or performing the miracle on the Jericho, of the Jordan, excuse me, getting my places mixed up, on the Jordan, allowing Joshua to enter the land. So it's very interesting that Rahab the harlot, a Canaanite, knew what God did in that generation, the Joshua generation, with the Jordan, and also knew what God did with the Exodus generation with the Red Sea. How did she get that awareness? I'm not sure how she got it, but she knew about it, and the Canaanites knew about God. And rather than repenting, they continued on in their sin. This went on for 400 years, and God finally said, that's enough. The interesting thing about the United States of America, when you look at our history and roots and foundation, we are a country that has a biblical foundation. It's not like the knowledge of God is somehow inaccessible in America. But to whom much is given, much is what? Much is expected. And God will not turn away judgment when it comes to our nation because of these sins, any more than he turned away judgment because of the wickedness of the Canaanites. But very, very sadly, despite the fine-sounding names of these two wives, this is who Esau chose to marry. He was um, what we would call, in the New Testament sense of the word, unequally yoked. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 26 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul in the New Testament says, don't put yourself in a position. Such as marriage, contemplating marriage, where you're actually yoked to an unsaved person. What was a yoke? It was like a harness that went over two animals walking the same direction. And if the two animals were of unequal strength, the stronger would influence the weaker. And Paul says when you enter into an intimate relationship with someone that doesn't even know Jesus, somebody that's not even born again, you might think you're entering into that relationship to rescue them. But the truth of the matter is they're going to affect you a lot more than you're going to affect them. 
It's like standing on a chair and asking someone to grab your hands and you say to the audience, is it easier for me to pull this person up on the chair or for that person on the ground to pull me down? Obviously the latter is much easier to do because the person on the ground has gravity working on their side. That, in essence, is what happens when a Christian enters into an intimate relationship via a marriage, personal business relationship, with an unsaved person. Obviously, we have to interact with unbelievers, or we'd have to leave the world. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, tells us that, but we have control over What sort of intimacy I'm going to have with an unsaved person? Paul says be very careful about intimacy with the unsaved person because at the end of the day, they will influence you more than you will influence them. I'm reminded of the story, the historical account of Lot that we've already studied in our series on the book of Genesis. How Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom Genesis 13, he began to dwell in Sodom. He became prominent in the story or in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And how at the end of the day, there was actually very little discernible difference between Lot's lifestyle and the unsaved Sodomites. And how that story is there about being careful about interjecting yourself into environments where the unbelieving world can have the potential to influence you. This, in essence, is what Esau is doing here. He's unequally yoked. And so he marries two women. First of all, they're Hittites. That's strike one. And secondly, he's marrying two. (laughs) I thought it was one man for one woman for one life, so he's getting involved in polygamy. And if that weren't enough, he picks up a third one. Later on in the book of Genesis, chapter 28 and verse 9, it says, And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. In other words, now he is marrying not just an unbeliever, not just two unbelievers, but th- but three unbelievers. Why would the Bible even expose a story like this? It's describing it for us to show us what not to do. Very sadly, we're living in a day in which people want to twist the Bible and use the Bible to satisfy their own sinful desires. I have actually seen theologians use passages like this to try to argue that the Bible supports polygamy. I mean, no big deal. That's what Esau was doing. And they'll actually point to Solomon, who married a lot more than three wives. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 3 and 4 of Solomon, it said he had 700 wives. I mean, keeping one spouse happy is hard enough. What would you do with 700? He had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. Obviously, he was entering into treaties with foreign nations, something the book of Deuteronomy said don't do. Don't enter into treaties with foreign nations. That, by the way, is why in the United States Constitution, which is patterned Largely after the Bible, there's a clause in there that says the President of the United States cannot enter into a treaty with a foreign country unless two-thirds of the majority in the Senate present concur with what he's doing. Well, if that's true, Pastor Andy, how come we entered into the Iran deal, the Paris Climate Accord, all of these kinds of things? Oh, they just played a word game. We just won't call it a treaty anymore. We'll just call it an executive agreement. A little fancy change of language there, and suddenly they think they can exempt themselves from the two-thirds supermajority criteria in the Senate. 
and if you think I'm making this criteria up, it's in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, 222. And you can read it for yourself and you'll find it there. And then you can open up to Deuteronomy 17 and you'll see the same restriction is placed on kings. And so in the ancient world, when you entered into a treaty with a foreign nation, part of the deal was you got the princess. The princess went to the king as part of the deal. That's why Solomon ended up with 700 wives. Meaning he entered into minimum 700 treaties with foreign nations when God said specifically don't do that. So these stories are here not to tell us how we should act, but they tell us what not to do. Why was this so problematic in the life of Solomon? It says in 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4, he, that Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And here's the problem. This is what God sees that we can't see when we're contemplating entering these types of personal relationships. It says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, and his wives turned his heart away. He brought into these marriages the pagan influences of these now wives. And this is why Solomon spent the latter portion of his life falling away from God. See, God, when he says don't be unequally yoked, knows what he's talking about. He knows the spiritual impact these intimate relations are going to have on us. And he says, I want to save you a lot of trouble, and I want to save you a lot of grief on the front end by not entering into these relationships at all. Solomon's whole life, and to some extent Esau's whole life, would have been totally different if they had simply obeyed what God said on the front end. God knows what's best for us. He knows what's going to damage us. He knows what's going to hurt us. And he tells us to stay away from things, not because he's some sort of cosmic killjoy, but because he knows the deleterious impact of sin. Things that we can't necessarily see on the front end as mere human beings. It says in 1 Kings 11 verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, little g, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. David, when he sinned, repented and came back to God by way of fellowship Solomon, who built the majestic first temple, the assignment went to Solomon because he was a man of peace, not a man of war, unlike David. In fact, in Solomon's name, you might recognize the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. I mean, Solomon had a great start. Solomon was clearly saved. Because if you say Solomon wasn't saved, you've got three books of the Bible written by an unsaved person. He wrote Proverbs, he wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, and he wrote the Song of Solomon. He probably wrote the Song of Solomon first in his young marital years. He probably wrote the book of Proverbs at the middle of his life, and then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes last. Sort of uh, regretting his misspent years at the end of his life. Boy, I I threw away an awful lot. God used me towards the beginning of my life. I was the second reigning king over the nation of Israel. I built temple number one, and I didn't do what God said. I got involved in treaties and intimate relationships, and my heart was turned away from God. That's why Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes at the very end He says a man or a person ought to honor their creator from the days of their youth. Start honoring God while you're young. And don't start making compromises when you're young because those compromises have a tendency, given the nature of sin, to 
come back and, and bite us. So this story of Solomon and then going back to the book of Genesis, the story of Esau is an example of what we call descriptive literature. There's a big difference in the Bible between descriptive literature and prescriptive literature. Prescriptive literature is telling you what to do, like the Ten Commandments. Descriptive literature is just telling you what happened to people, hoping that we would learn from their bad example. So when you understand that we're dealing here with descriptive literature and not prescriptive literature, you can't use this story with Esau or the story with Solomon to somehow argue it's God's will for us to violate his marital standards. People, what they do when they come to the Bible is they, they, they kind of feel like, well, I'm here to correct the Bible. The Bible's not here to correct me, I'm here to correct it. And if I'm doing something that the Bible frowns on, I need to come up with word gimmicks and make the Bible support what it is I want to do. People do this all of the time. Uh, The feminist movement does this with the Bible. The homosexual movement does this with the Bible. I've actually read doctoral dissertations where it's obvious the person writing the dissertation is addicted to some kind of foreign substance. And they're trying to go into the Bible and trying to make it sound like indulging in foreign substances or alien substances to the point of intoxication is okay. Well, that's obviously someone with a sinful impulse that's trying to find some kind of support in the pages of God's Word as if the Bible is here to receive our correction. We're not here to correct the Bible. We're not here to second-guess the Bible. If anybody needs correcting, it's it's me and, and you. Amen? God cannot lie. So this is not prescriptive literature. This is descriptive. Now, if you want what is prescriptive for marriage, go back to the beginning. Go back to the pattern of God before sin entered the world. In fact, these are the two verses that Jesus quoted in Matthew 19 when he was questioned about divorce and remarriage from the Pharisees. They were trying to get Jesus in Matthew 19 into a big discussion about what the two rabbis of the day were teaching. What does Hillel say about divorce and remarriage? What does Shammai say about divorce and remarriage? What does Dr. Phil say about divorce and remarriage. And it's very interesting to me that Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't get involved in a big discussion about what the key thinkers of the day were saying on the subject of controversy, apparently. He goes right back to the blueprint of God. Because the blueprint of God reveals what is normal. It says in Genesis 1.27, Then God made man in his own image... In the image of God, he created him, male and female. I only see two genders there, by the way. He created them. And then over in Genesis 2, verse 24, which is sort of an unpacking of what happened on day 6, we now have the first marriage. And it says in Genesis 2, 24, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's prescriptive. The pattern of God in terms of marriage, sexuality, is one man for one woman for one life. Heterosexual monogamy. Now, I I understand that when you begin to talk like this, people start to feel very guilty because maybe at some point in their lives... They violated the standard. The truth of the matter is, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all violated God's standards. That's why we need His grace. The grace of God is always available for any sin. But that doesn't change the fact that there's a standard. 
I can either choose to honor the standard or ignore the standard, but the standard's there regardless of what I do. And we're living in a culture today where people want to rewrite the standard. As if it's ours to rewrite. I mean, I thought it was God that said this. These are God's instructions. God knows what's going to damage us. God knows what's going to fulfill us. And we are not in any position to second-guess his prescriptive material. And so you see um, Esau drifting into this, verse 34, when he was 40 years old. He married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. He's outside of the will of God. Now here is something that Esau never contemplated. This affected his parents. See, I thought it was just about me and my personal fulfillment. That's what America thinks. That's the doctrine of humanism. What you have to understand is when you move off into sin, it has a spillover effect onto innocent people. And you see this spillover effect given right there in verse 35. And they, who's they, the two wives, these Hittite women, brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. I like the way Arnold Fruchtenbaum summarizes this grief that the parents were experiencing, Isaac and Rebekah, because of Esau's sin. He says, Genesis 26, verse 35, tells about the effect on his parents of Esau's marriage to foreign wives. They were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. In Hebrew, it means bitterness of feeling or a bitterness of spirit. In other words, Esau's behavior damaged the spirit, the internal mindset, the internal contentment of his own parents. Esau's marriages emphasized his continuing unfaithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Just as the selling of the birthright shows he despised his birthright and its covenant-keeping element, now by the same token, the marrying of the Hittite wives was a further step downward to his unfaithfulness to the covenant. You see what happened with Esau? He made a bad choice. You remember the story that we studied in the prior chapter? Sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, essentially. And the interesting thing is when you make one bad choice, it doesn't take long till you make the next choice, which is actually worse than the first choice. Uh, I think someone has summed it up this way. The, the road to immorality is paved through gradual compromises. Nobody wakes up and says, you know, today I'm going to get myself addicted to drugs and I'm going to get myself thrown in jail for larceny. And um, I think I'd like to become an adulterer also. And that's, that's a full day to get all that in. <laughs> I mean, generally what happens is it's one little compromise, you know, particularly with adultery. You're online with somebody of the opposite sex that you're not married to, and there's all this texting going on back and forth. And Or maybe you work with such a person, and, and you're married, and he or she is not. And you start taking lunches together, and the lunches get a little longer. Pastors, I, I can't tell you how many pastors I know have fallen into this with so-called counseling with females or women, you start to start to look forward to the counseling session. Hey, she, she thinks I'm pretty neat. She thinks I'm, I'm pretty smart and wise. She's kind of the damsel in distress, you know. She's coming to me for counseling. And you kind of start to look forward to it. And down as you start to move downward and downward, 
uh, intimacy starts to develop that shouldn't be there in the first place, and you have one pastor after another after another. I, I, I made a list once of all of the pastor friends I know, personally, that became disqualified for the ministry because of adultery. I'm embarrassed how long that list was. And I said, Lord, how can I keep myself away from that? And the answer is, really, don't compromise on the front end. As the Bible says, the battle's in the mind. I mean, you're thinking impure or inappropriate thoughts towards someone. Um, I had a pastor once that said, private thoughts lead to public actions. Well, If that's true, then maybe I should control my thought life on the front end and discipline my thought life on the front end so I don't end up doing something that would be ashamed of myself, ashamed of my church, ashamed of my flock, ashamed of my parents, which is what happened here with Esau. We do have a policy here at Sugarland Bible Church. I think it's a great policy that a man, an elder or a deacon is really not to be alone in a room with a woman. There should be two in the room besides the counselor and the counselee. I think that's wisdom. My professor, Dr. Toussaint, told us, just don't counsel women. That's what he thought. I'm not sure if I completely agree with that, but he said, I've seen such a mess with this. Just don't counsel women at all. Women should counsel women. Men should counsel men. But this is an area where the enemy has tremendous inroad. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil a foothold. In other words, if you cater to the sin nature, Satan cannot possess you as a Christian, but he'll take whatever ground you're willing to yield, and he'll start to influence you. And so Esau made a bad choice, chapter 26, related to the birthright. Now he has made a second bad choice related to taking on these wives. He's going to make another bad choice when he takes on a third wife all of them outside of the faith and being unequally yoked to three wives. And I don't think he woke up one day and said, okay, I'm going to get myself unequally yoked to three women. I think there were battles going on in his mind long before he made those decisions. And he yielded too much. He gave too much ground. The same thing, I mentioned the story of Lot earlier. Lot, according to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, I want to say it's, um, oh, what is it, verse 11, 12, 13, right in there. It just talks about how Lot, Genesis 13, pitched his tent towards Sodom. Meaning he just started to think about a lifestyle in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Genesis 19 records how the sad story of Lot ended with him not only sojourning in Sodom and Gomorrah, but being a a political leader in Sodom. And he had to be dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah kicking and screaming by angelic intervention. And even when Lot began to get spiritual and say the Lord is going to destroy this city, his in-laws, Genesis 19, thought he was just jesting. Oh, there goes Lot again, joking around. Why would they say that about him? Because he had no lifestyle to back up his proclamation. And that's the problem with moving into habitual sin and becoming ensnared by it and trapped by it is you lose your ability to preach truth to the unsaved world because the unsaved world's not going to listen to you because you look just like them. And this is how Satan is perpetually and continually working. You say, well, pastor, can't you say anything nice about Satan? I actually can. He's a hard worker. 
I've never seen someone that works like he does. Um, Satan never takes a vacation. I had someone say to me, Pastor, are you going on vacation? I said, yeah. Well, Satan never takes a vacation. And I said, well, since when is Satan my role model? (laughs) It says in Matthew chapter 4 that after the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him for a more opportune time. In other words, you get a, a victory or two and Satan doesn't just give up. He comes back. If he did it with the Son of God, he certainly does it with us. He comes back more aggressively to see if he can get you to compromise your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Esau's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, were grieved by this. How were they grieved? Well, one of the reasons they were grieved... Not only did their son marry Canaanites, who are under a divine curse, not because of skin, but because of sin, but when you look at the lengths God went to to put Isaac and Rebekah together, they wanted the same for their son, and their son wouldn't have any part in it. You remember the story from Genesis chapter 24? Genesis chapter 24, verses 2 through 4. Abram said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. Make sure Isaac, as Abraham is instructing his servant, don't let him marry a Canaanite. In fact, I want you to, that top circle, go all the way up north from the land of Israel on the Mediterranean, all the way up north, that's a journey of about 400 miles. And I want you to wait on the Lord, because the Lord is going to give you the wife of my son, who we know in hindsight is Rebecca. And then this command is so serious to Abraham that it's repeated later on in the same chapter, Genesis 24, 37 through 38. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. Look at the instructions and look at the links God went to to unite Isaac and Rebekah Isaac, a non-Canaanite, we've studied that chapter verse by verse. God did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, providentially, to unite Isaac and Rebekah. And here's Esau just throwing the whole thing away. I mean, this was his family heritage. And he was acting like he didn't care about the heritage, or he was acting like the heritage doesn't matter. He was acting like he was ignorant of the heritage. And Isaac and Rebekah could think back and remember how God brought them together and now watch their son throwing it all away, and this made their spirits bitter. The next time you think or we think about stepping off into sin, just look at sin from that angle. How is it going to affect your parents? Third John In verse 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than this. In other words, this is my greatest joy, John says. To hear of my children walking in the truth. Nothing makes me more fulfilled, nothing makes me more content than my own children walking in the truth. The book of Proverbs is filled with exhortations about how children 
can bring shame upon their parents by following a pattern of sin, by following a lifestyle of sin, by making choices to live a lifestyle outside of the protective care and the protective custody of God. And this is why Isaac and Rebecca spent their waning years in grief. And it's what we do to people too when we move off into sin. Because this, of course, is sin's nature. Sin impacts the innocent. In humanism, the idea that it's just about me and my fulfillment, we don't think this way. We don't think about the negative effect this is going to have on innocent parties. How is this going to affect the innocent? That's that's a question I almost never think about when I'm tempted, as you are tempted, to move off into sin. And we ought to think about it. Because sin is such that you cannot negotiate with it. Once you let it out, it's like a genie out of the bottle. You can't contain it. You can't control it. Because it's so much more powerful than you. Have you thought lately about Genesis chapter 4? Where Abel was contemplating murdering his brother. In other words, sin was rearing its ugly head by way of temptation in Cain's life. I may have had those backwards. Cain was thinking about murdering Abel. There we go. I'm having all kinds of trouble today. That's what Florida does to you. It says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it says, If you do well, will you not... Will not your countenance be lifted up? God is speaking to Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's personified here as crouching at the door. And its desire, that's power, is for you. But you must master it. In other words, you, Cain, Better get this under control before it gets you under control. Because you're going to step forward with an action that you're going to spend your whole life regretting. And, of course, Cain didn't listen to the exhortation. He committed first-degree murder against his brother. He had to receive the protective mark of God and spent his whole life as a wandering vagabond. And all of that could be different if he had done what God said. Get it under control before it controls you. Because it's a lot more powerful than you think it is. I mean, it's personified as crouching at the door. It's almost like it's got a mind of its own. It's like the monster in the closet. You better keep it shut. You better keep it locked. Because once it gets out, you're not going to be able to master it or control it. And praise God, in Christ Jesus, we have the resources to tell sin no. But a lot of times we just don't follow the advice or the exhortation. And we introduce forces and powers into our lives that take something out of us that we never contemplated on the front end. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? A wage is a price. It's a cost. It it exacts a toll. And in this case with Esau, it was affecting his own parents. The book of Galatians, uh, chapter 6, and verses 7 and 8, says this about sin. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The principle of sowing and reaping, what you put into the ground by way of a seed, later comes out of the ground, much bigger than that seed that went in in the first place. 
And you could be sowing wonderful God-ordained seeds in your life, and you could be sowing things in your life that are not God-ordained. And I can just tell you as, as, a wit, as an eyewitness, there are some wonderful things happening in my life because of good seed I put into the ground 20, 30 or so years ago. Conversely, there are some things that are happening in my life because of bad seed that I sowed 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's the law of sowing and reaping. And this is why Paul says God is not mocked. This is, this is a law that God has ordained. You plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. Plant a lemon seed, you're going to get a lemon tree. And if you were to put uh, an apple seed in the ground and get a lemon tree by way of an exchange down the road, the law of sowing and reaping would be set aside. God would be mocked. But you can't set aside the laws of God. You, you can't set aside the laws of God any more than you can hurl yourself from the top of a two-story building and think that somehow the law of gravity that God set up doesn't apply to you. It does apply. There is a principle of sowing and reaping. And we need to pay attention to it because the way into immorality is paved through gradual compromises. It should be very clear that uh, this man, Esau, is not the seed line through which the Messiah is going to be born. He, number one, despised his birthright. Number two, he's marrying two Hittites. Uh, Number three, he's going to marry a third woman, Canaanite, if I'm not mistaken. We'll get to that when we get over to Genesis 28. And all of this information is given to us to show us that, yes, he was the firstborn, but he was not the seed son. The Messiah is going to come from the lineage of Jacob and not Esau. And that lineage is going to be developed as we continue to move through the book of Genesis. What saith the scriptures about Esau? Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, if you don't get some sort of teaching on this, you're going to think that God hates people, which obviously can't be true. Because the Bible says, John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The last time I checked, the world would include Esau, wouldn't it? God doesn't hate people. Well, then why does it say, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated? It has to do with choice. The choice here is not salvation. That's where this passage is misconstrued. The choice is the lineage through which the Messiah would come. So then why does it say God hated Esau but loved Jacob? You have to understand how the word hate is used in biblical languages. Jesus said this in Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says you want to be my disciple, then you've got to hate mom and dad. You've got to hate your parents, and yet... Jesus couldn't be saying that because the last time I checked, one of the Ten Commandments, is it not commandment number five, is honor. 
your mother and father, that it may be long for you on the earth. So if we're supposed to be fulfilling the fifth commandment, honoring our parents, then why would Jesus say to be his disciple? Not to be a believer, but to be his disciple. And there's a distinction. You have to hate your own parents. It has to do with choice. When there's a collision between what Jesus says to do and what your parents say to do. If you follow mom and dad and not Jesus, you're not his disciple. And that's how this word hate is used. It's not used in a I hate mom and dad framework. It's used in the concept of choice. And so when the Bible says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, what it is talking about is how God has chosen the Messiah to be born through the lineage of Jacob and not Esau. And the fact that Esau is moving off into gross sin is evidence of the lack of choice thereof. Don't come into this and create some doctrine about this person has chosen to go to heaven, this person has chosen to go to hell. That's not what the passage is talking about. It's not even dealing with that salvific idea. What it's dealing with is the lineage leading to Jesus Christ. God said, I have sovereignly made a decision that the Messiah is going to come through Jacob. Even though the world system would say the Messiah should come through Esau because he's the firstborn. God says, I'm reversing what is normal. And he does this, I think, seven, eight, nine times in the book of Genesis. Favors the younger over the older. I'm reversing what is normal. Well, how can you do that, God? God says, I can do it because I'm God. And those are my prerogatives. And so all of these sorts of things are there to build our faith in the sovereignty of God. Certainly information that the Joshua generation reading this is going to need when they're going to go into Canaan and slay the Canaanites who are a lot bigger than them. I mean, how are we going to go in and and slay, Lord, the starting five of the Houston Rockets? I mean, those guys are all seven feet tall. And it's not even the starting five. It's like the starting, you know, hundreds of thousands. How do we do it? I'm sovereign. Don't, don't worry about the results, I'll take care of it. Well, Lord, how do we know you're sovereign? Because I reverse what's normal all the way in the book that you're reading, the book of Genesis. So it's a faith builder. So things don't end well for Esau. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Esau, God did love, but he was not the seed line, obviously, leading to Jesus, and a choice like this demonstrates it. So, an interesting couple of verses, wouldn't you say? Esau's age, the names of his wives, and the impact on his parents. And it is fascinating to me that 2,000 years before the time of Christ, a story like this, a historical account like this could be given, and the Holy Spirit could even take it, and apply it to us in the year 2023. Not prescriptive, but descriptive. Here's what not to do. Don't violate the law of sowing and reaping because your life is too important for that. God has too many things he wants to do in and through you to to be messing around with things like this. And speaking of laws... Another law principle coming from God is that he's holy. And our sin, which I never had to be taught, 
I never had to be taught to sin. It comes naturally. My nature puts me on a collision course with God. And I'm God's enemy. That's pure Bible. You'll find that in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. That's our problem. And until we understand the problem, we don't really understand the solution. The solution is God fixed it through Jesus, who stepped out of eternity into time 2,000 years ago, and bridged that gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And he absorbed in his own body the wrath of God the Father in our place. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And he offers us salvation from the wrath of God. This is very important to understand. Salvation is not achieved. It's received. If you think that you can achieve salvation, you've fallen for the doctrine of religion which is the idea that man has to pull himself up by his own bootstraps and somehow make himself right before God. The truth of the matter is salvation is not achieved. It's received. In fact, the book of Isaiah, chapter 64 and verse 6, tells us that our works of righteousness, notice that, righteousness, the things we do to curry God's favor, God looks at as filthy rags. The only thing that he will accept is what his son did for us 2,000 years ago. And then once we receive it, we become his children. And then he says, as his child, here's how you're supposed to live. Here's how your practice catches up with your position. And you sort of spend the rest of your life as a Christian understanding what you have. And God convicts us and moves us into a lifestyle that's godly so we reflect who we already are. I mean, if God says I'm righteous, maybe I should act like it in my daily life. That's called sanctification. But that can't happen until a person first receives what Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, our exhortation is to hear the gospel and as you come under the conviction of the Spirit, receive what Jesus has done. And according to Romans 4, 4 and 5, the only way to receive a gift from God is to believe or trust. What must we do to do the works of God? The religious people asked Jesus in John six twenty eight and 29. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Christianity is not a 12-step program. It's a one-step. You trust Jesus and what he did for you 2,000 years ago in your place as our scapegoat, as our substitute. You can't achieve this. You receive it by trusting in it. And just like that, in a nanosecond, God takes his righteousness and applies it to your life. And he says, he, she is my child. Now, act like it. Grow up. Come of age. Let your practice catch up with your position. And in the latter, you may make some great strides some days, other days you won't, but you're still God's child because this was given to you as a gift. You didn't achieve it, you received it. And so with that being said, we invite anybody within the sound of my voice as the Spirit convicts them to trust in the work of the Messiah Jesus Christ. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, pay money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord, or the Lord puts you under conviction and you trust in the provision of Jesus. We hope many people are doing this in the building as I'm speaking.
We hope and pray that people listening online are doing this. We hope and pray that people listening to the archives or watching the archives after the fact will do this because it's the most important decision in a person's life. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, help us to be mindful of the power of sin and what you did to bridge the gap to deal with our sin problem. And then as your people, help us to continue to understand the power of sin. Help us this week not to tamper with it, but under your resources, reckon it dead. Help us to say no and yes to the many things that you seek to replace sinful habits and lifestyles with. We ask that you'll do this great work of justification and then sanctification. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.